An executive decision has been made. Maya is not to start yet another episode with laughter, like a maniacal fucking creature, talking about Philly sides the whole month and how the she started the episodes is a chuckle cheapskate. Hi and welcome. This is by all means necessary. This is the level of the lockdown I'm in. I have just enjoyed half an hour in the shower. Don't mind my greasy hair if you're watching this on YouTube. <laughs> I'm gonna change all of my handles to Maya's Meltdown. This podcast called By All Means Necessary has only one host that talks to herself a lot and talks in third person a lot. Sorry if you're confused and you were expecting like somebody else to be saying that. No, it's uh, it's just me and my personalities and my ego in this room. We are back in the game. I miss podcasting. You know what? I miss it. Because now that I'm on TikTok, first of all, I feel about at least 10% dumber. At least. But also, I missed the long form. Because literally not there, you know, you're trying to fit everything into like 60 seconds. And then now when I talk, I kind of like clip myself. Like I can't, like there's one thought and then I'm like done with it. And I'm like, okay, no, no, I need to like continue with it. On that note, what didn't make me feel any smarter whatsoever is that I had to look this expression up, but I thought that um, the meaning of the expression or the second part of the expression is something completely different. You've probably heard it. You might, as myself, hate it. The expression is hindsight is 2020. Did you know that 2020 in that expression doesn't refer to the last year? <laughs> did you? <laughs> because if you did, tap yourself on the shoulder. You you, you should be feeling very smart right now because um, that is the expression of the day and then we are diving into the most disgusting culmination of this month that we could possibly have because this case is going to enrage you. So... Honestly, I wouldn't be offended if you just stay for, like, the expression part and then exit out. Because this case has everything wrong. Like, Felicides are wrong in general. This case is on the next level. Yeah. We've done the one in Finland. We've done Marvin Gaye. Can it get worse? Yeah. Mm, I found one. I, I found it. It, it. it really wasn't hard. Before we dive into that expression, I haven't seen a single podcast cover this case, so... If this episode ever gets removed for any, like, legal reasons, which I don't know why there would be legal reasons, because there are literally plenty of articles that can publish this. So I don't know if it is to do with, like, independent creators, or is this case just way too brutal? And it's nothing to do with talking about those documents and the legalities of that, and it's just that nobody else wants to cover it. I just thought that really to be really interesting. So if somebody contacts me with like cease to exist freaking thing, I know it's not called that. It's in my head it's called cease to exist. So yeah, if somebody wants to cancel this podcast because of this case, I'll be removing it. But it's important to talk about. So the expression of the day, followed by case. Let's do it. The expression hindsight is twenty twenty. Let's break it down. What's one thing? What's the other? So hindsight technically means experience. It's like looking back onto the past and realizing that maybe you should have done a different thing. Hindsight is twenty twenty means kind of exactly the same thing. They just complicated with the twenty twenty thing, which as I mentioned, isn't to do with the year, with the past year, which was like the worst year in the history of like years of millennials. No, and I was gutted that I didn't know that because my eyesight is fucked up and I had no idea. So first of all, it's not written 2020, it's 20 over 20 technically, you know, 20, then dash, then 20. This is known as a Snellen fraction. And this is to do with measuring your eyesight. So basically, this Dutch ophthalmologist Hermann Snellen in 1862 developed this thing, which if any of you have issues with your eyes, you have gone to the ophthalmologist and they have like show you 11 letters or however many. You'd sit in one spot and you start off from the top, from like the ones that look huge. And then, you know, they base your eyesight of this ancient fucking method that was apparently fucking established in 1862. And you sit in your chair and you're like, okay, I can't read below like the third line. I'm fucking blind. So the smallest row that you can read accurately at a distance of 20 feet, so let's say if you were to go backwards and you were to read one of these letters, that would indicate the visual acuity of that specific eye. What's considered 2020 is the A row. So you start with that big E usually, which is like the top one, and that is 20 out of 200. So by the time you scroll down to the A line, while looking at that screen with the letters, that line is considered 2020. 
And that's because the person with the normal vision should still be able to tell you the letters in that line at a distance of 20 feet or 6 meters. Except if you're like blind like me and you can't fucking do that shit. <laughs> Literally every time we'll be like further off, I'm like... Also, not to brag, but my eyes are really weird and one is like the plus and the other one is minus, meaning like with one eye I see distant things, with the other one I can only see like close-up shit. I don't understand it. I don't think my left eye works, to be honest, and it's a lazy eye as well, so I genuinely just think like my my right eye saves me and stuff. Don't give fucking... Don't give your traits to potential murderers, Maya, Jesus fucking Christ. Imagine if somebody leaves you just with the left eye. Why is this where my mind goes? Hindsight is 2020. <laughs> Moving on to better things. So what does it mean? Did you answer that? No? First, it appeared in the Ben News News in February 1949, this newspaper. And it was attributed to humorist Richard Armour. And then I was like, okay, let me let me tell you something about the man. I googled the man. There are two quotes that appeared that the man has said that made me not look this man up further. The two quotes are, middle age is the time of life that a man first notices in his wife. Mm-hmm. You, you thought that was misogynist? The second quote is, until Eve arrived, this was a man's world. Shut the fuck up. How was it a man's world? Until Eve arrived, you wouldn't have been, let's say I'm religious, you wouldn't have been able to reproduce and to make this a man's world. You would be the only person who would then get extinct. You would be the only man, then you would get extinct, and then there would be no man. Or women, for that matter. So shut the fuck up, Richard Armour. So yeah, I didn't look him up any further. I think he's dead, so he won't like sue me for this. <laughs> Break. I, I missed podcasting. Can you tell? Literally podcasted the exact same time last week, the exact same hour. No, I missed it. I feel it in my chest. Okay, so hindsight is twenty twenty. Let's just finish. Let's just wrap this up, Maya. You can do it. Means that somebody finally realizes that in the event that should have been obvious all along, you've made a mistake. And then looking back on it, you're like, oh wow, like hindsight is 2020. I shouldn't have like eaten that lasagna because now I have like diarrhea or, you know, other common stuff that happens to people. So moving on to uh, segue this into somehow into one of the most miserable cases that are out there. In this world. Okay, the person I'm talking about today is called Gigi. I have also now realized that I have never said that name out loud. Because there's only one other Gigi that is famous for better things than this one is. And well, I know that this will come as a surprise to everybody, but I don't just sit around talking about models. I know, wow, right. Wow, supermodels, JJ every fucking day. So it really sounds weird when I say it out loud, so I might like figure out a way to just call her G or something. <sighs> She's a piece of shit. Let's dive in. For context, we are going to New York to 2020, and we are walking straight into a Peninsula Hotel. So before arriving at the Peninsula, Gigi Jordan, who was already a famous name in healthcare industry, because she's been working in the industry for about 20 years, has taken her son and has made different trips before checking into a hotel in New York. So first of all, she's gone to a Chase Bank, where she made a transfer of $8 million between two accounts. Then she took cabs around Manhattan and has driven for three hours in the midst of rush hour, just sort of checking, staking out which hotel would be the best one to go to. I wish I somebody spoke to that cab driver and has been like, what was she saying? Like, What exactly was she doing? Finally, she decides on the peninsula. So after going to the front desk, she takes the elevator to the 16th floor, enters the room 1603, this obviously huge-ass suit that costs $2,500 a night. And she pays in cash, which is a bit sus, lady. Like, do you not want somebody to track your bank accounts? Which is dumb, because you already made that transaction in the Chase Bank, so something is gonna get back to you. Whatever shady business you are about to get into right now. 
A few minutes after checking in, she rings room service and asks somebody to bring chicken fingers and carrots, which people presumed were to serve as her son's dinner. And she also requested one of those buckets of ice, because what people didn't know is that she kind of sneaked in some alcohol as well. What nobody knew, however, is how much alcohol she sneaked in and how many pills she sneaked in. She carried in her bags about 6,000 pills, out of which they will recover 5,819. They found Xanax, Prozac, Ambien, Catapress, Celebrex, Ezekiel, Naltrexone, and Hydrocodone. (sighs) Literally heard two of those, but the majority of these have been legally prescribed for her son. Her son Jude was actually autistic. And again, for context, we'll go about this further in the background, but his mother got him well, on a lot of pills, but also tried to get him through any therapy possible for him to get better. So Jude, at the time, would take about 40 pills a day. What people also didn't know is that she had a pill crusher and a syringe. Except from this room service, she would not leave the room for the next 40 hours. Between February the 3rd and February the 4th, 2010, Gigi Jordan killed her autistic son Jude. Ever since, she has tried to prove this was a mercy killing, by all means necessary. What were her motives? Her discovery story is one of the wildest things I have read in over a year now. We'll talk about what happened to Jude on that evening later. After she has sealed his fate, she composed what other people described as a rambling 20-page message. She made certain bank transactions that we'll talk about later again, and she sends the email to the aunt that was traveling for Europe. Now, nobody disclosed what this particular message that she sent to her aunt contained, but the aunt was alarmed enough to try to trace her down. So she realized she's in one of the hotels. I don't think she disclosed which hotel she was staying at. So the aunt called the Trump residence first, because that was one of the hotels that Gigi was like scouting in that cab for. The Trump residence called the peninsula, and then the security manager, Christopher Nguyen, takes the call. You're in this guy's shoes today because this guy is took no shit. He was like, no, mm-hmm. That woman? Yeah. Yeah, no, actually, now that you mention it, we haven't seen her since last night, since that room service. She isn't checking out. We haven't heard of that son. No. So he immediately calls the officers of the New York Police Department, and they're like, hey, come here for a welfare check, basically. Four of these officers appear, and he takes them to the room 1603. He does not alert the mom. Love this guy. He's like, no, I'm taking this shit seriously. Like, fuck knows what was in that email, because that thing alarmed like six people. He unlocks the door to the room with a master key, and it appears that it was blocked by a chair on the inside. So they push that thing aside, and they come into, like, the most probably traumatic scene ever. So the pill bottles were everywhere, the light was dim, and Gigi was just sitting on the floor, leaning against the bed. And in the bed was the boy that at first looked like he was sleeping. Just judging by the number of pills that were exposed and vodka bottles on the side, they knew that this child will most probably not be breathing once they check his pulse. Before you find out what occurred on the evening between the 3rd and the 4th, I'm leaving this on the cliffhanger and we are going straight to the trial. I divided the trial in prosecution versus defense. So let me define her defense's standpoint. They said that she was desperate. She saw no other option. She tried everything else to help Jude. They used a suicide note, that email that she has sent, like that 20-page letter, as evidence. And her defense was Gigi was married twice and divorced twice. So her first ex-husband allegedly threatened to kill her. And this would be the crime that would leave Jude without 
his mother. However, people didn't know is that her second husband was actually sexually abusing Jude. So obviously that would leave Jude without his mother and in the custody of the sexually abusive father. So her defense lawyer, Ellen Brenner, was to paint this picture for everybody. I think this was New York Times. Like, I have to read some parts of this out to you because whoever, like, described her, it was just so eerily but so on point when you look for any videos or, like, any pictures. So they described her looks and just, like, her composure during the trial, saying she would usually come to court in a brown blouse and a sweater that hangs to her knees. She looks like an aunt who had a good time in her 30s and had since settled down, though she will happily tell you about the good old days over a bottle of white wine. I love when somebody saw her face, I was like, yeah, this is the image that I get. I saw her face, I was like, she's just beige. You know how there are people that are just, you can associate them to a color, and then there are people that you can 100% associate to a color beige. Yeah, she's just beige. There's just no, like, emotion. There's no Casey Anthony thing where, like, she's, like, overly happy and, like, disturbingly happy. But it's just very matter-of-fact. It's just like, yeah, she's just a bit bored and unamused to be there. And you're like, what? You, what? For somebody that's in this much fear for her life and then in despair decided to kill her son, you are too beige. For a woman who killed her only child, she's surprisingly likable. Though a trio of female lawyers who sat behind this journalist compared her to Amy Dunn, the antagonist of Gone Girl. Of course she took the stand, which I think tells you a lot about the person. So she pled guilty, and I think this is a mistake in any case, because, like, the defense lawyers in most guilty cases, I think, should advise you never to take a stand, because they're gonna rip you apart, like... And everybody's going to judge your behavior and how you act and the stand. So from everything I research, I don't think this is a common thing. And it's usually like the narcissist and the people that want to be perceived as like, I did this, I was suffering, that usually take the stand. And that's exactly how they look because they can't hide it because they want to be the center of fucking attention. So on the stand, she portrayed her actions as a mercy killing, said her ex-husband was threatening to kill her. She said the first husband told her, you are a dead woman. And she told the jury, I made the decision I was going to end my life and Jude's life. I'm going to put a clip in, if it doesn't get copyrighted, or one of her interviews where she keeps repeating this. And nobody... This case pissed me off on so many levels. Nobody questions this woman. Wait, can we develop on the part where you commit suicide? Because that wasn't clear to anybody. Like, they went into the room. You were fine. Like, you didn't take, they didn't find drugs in your system. They didn't find, like, that you down shit ton of vodka to, like, commit this suicide with vodka and drugs. Like, no. All these drugs were in your son's system. Like, nobody elaborates. Even this journalist that's asking her questions, she just kind of, matter of fact, says this again and again. And I'm like, why is nobody asking her, like, okay, for a second, let's stop there. How did you successfully do one thing, but not the other? I'm not saying I'm condoning that if she would have killed herself, this would have been better. I'm just saying that this as a defense just isn't ripped apart enough. She was worth insane amount of money because she worked for 20 years in healthcare industry. She could have gone and reported this. Like, people would have believed her. This isn't like me if I was to report, like, you know, oh my god, my ex, like, he's threatening to kill me. And they're like, who the fuck are you? This is a person that was known, that was a known socialite, that was known and credible in this industry. So people probably would have taken this seriously and would have believed her. She had other options. Not just on the reporting front, but if there was actually the sexual abuse by the other ex-husband, then again, why not report that? Or if it comes down to what I think this case actually comes down to, and that is that maybe she was just fed up and didn't know how to take care of her autistic son, then again, give him up for adoption. This is like the case of fucking Kelly Lane or just any case out there that like drives me fucking insane. How these people think are like somebody's gonna judge me if I give my son for adoption, or, like you know, they're gonna think like I'm a shit mother if somebody else like lives in and takes care of my autistic son. So my logical conclusion to this is let's murder this child. No, nobody's gonna judge that. No, they're just gonna slide over that. 
I will go to court and I will be able to like plot all of this defense about like my two ex-husbands and justify that instead of the part where I leave them in peace and everybody lives in this story. No, that's just not how my mind works. So her defense attorney is asking her while she's on stand to like explain the situation and she testifies she received death threats from her first husband in the days preceding the murder. And two years earlier, she also testified that Jude informed her that her second husband repeatedly sodomized and tortured him. We'll speak about Jude's autism later, but he could barely speak. He could barely communicate, even like from everything, from his teachers, like his therapists and stuff. He could barely communicate, but somehow, according to his mother, he has learned how to type. He has learned how to use a laptop which, again, nobody else could confirm. So, three months, in a breakthrough, three months before his murder, he learned how to type on a laptop and then gave her a detailed account, naming several other people as well. So, her defense lawyer, Ellen Brenner, would say that due to the threats, coupled with the fear that her son would again be abused and she would leave him to be abused with another person because she would be dead, caused this, like, emotional turmoil, and she did it because she loved him. This next bit about what Jude has apparently said, I have only found in tabloids. So there is only one page out of the 20-page suicide note that is made to the public that doesn't reveal much. I'll go into that and what's on that page, and I'll put it on the screen. However, I'm just emphasizing that the quotes about what Jude has said, I have only found in tabloid articles, so stuff like Daily Mail or The Sun. So I have found it in different articles, but all of them were tabloids. So just take it with a grain of salt. So apparently Jude wrote, let's just get out while we can, on 26th of January 2010. And he said, we are going to die anyway, let's do it ourselves instead of them. We need to live in a way we want to, not their way. Get the pills and try to do it. And according to these tabloids, she claims he wrote other messages claiming that it wouldn't be murder and he said, like, use a lot of drugs so he would die peacefully. So obviously I'm not taking this 100% correct because, well, A, even if she was to have said that that happened, Drew's ability to talk just wasn't at that level in the first place. This is the first page of the suicide note that is dated December the 3rd, 2010. She opens up saying, I'm writing this note for whoever might care enough to know of our tragedy and do something to help make a change for the better out of all this. And then on the abuse, the only thing that's available from this note is her saying, both Miss Maybe and Mr. Rotter and the school psychologist Miss Judy Landy, who were aware of some of the abuse history with Jude's biological father, and they were open, believing, and warm, really caring about Jude. When they refer in court about these abuses and what her son Jude has actually told her, they refer to his as the essay that's called The Listening Boy. On the stand, she'd also say, my life can only get harder if I'm dead and my son falls prey to these people again. I believe they used him for child pornography as well, but I can't prove it. There are no further pages of this note available online, and I just need to make something clear. I don't think that they particularly investigated this or have told us how they investigated the sexual abuse part in detail during the court. Like, that's one thing. In every single article, what you find is there was no evidence of any abuse. But, you know, you're kind of not telling me how you arrived at that evidence. So I don't want to just, like, brush past it, but that's how in every single article it has been represented. From what I read, the biological father of Jude hasn't actually seen him in a year, so that's why this was unfounded. And yes, it can be complete bullshit, but I feel like, you know, people should have at least told us in those articles, like, how they have investigated any of these claims to make this credible. What I don't find is somebody confirming how they have done this. Like, we have investigated, I don't know, exchange of messages between the first husband and Gigi, and there was no threats. Or, you know, however she said she got those threats. The same applies to sexual abuse. There's nobody saying, okay, there was definitely... You know, the father and the son lived in separate cities, there was no connection there, they would have never met, there would never have been an opportunity for this to happen. That's the things you don't see. You see stuff like there's also lack of evidence showing her suicide attempt, there's no immediate evidence that the boy had suffered from abuse at the hands of either his adoptive father or his biological dad. 
nothing going into detail on this. And she also, while testifying, has said that the abusive husband, Ray Mira, hired people to spy on her and Judy in New York to ensure she would not expose him as a child abuser. So she thought he hired informants, a nurse, and her husband were also sent to kill Jordan and her son. So that would explain her in the cab basically for three hours going around and choosing hotel that she could trust. She said, I was going to different hotels to call lawyers because I believed my room was bugged. So to conclude, on the defense side, they're presenting her as this woman going through like emotional turmoil. She believes she is going to be killed and her son is going to be either abused or killed by one of these people. She has clearly gotten paranoid, has spent three years counting for a hotel, can't even live at her own place, has found this suit and has committed a mercy killing. Now on to the prosecution side. The prosecution came out with what you could consider facts. I know, (laughs) strange, but uh, you could consider these things uh, a bit more factual, like actual documents, like actual written evidence in in writing, you know, the receipts. So they presented her as somebody calculated, no emotional turmoil. Again, one thing I couldn't find is somebody actually evaluating her and being like, okay, she suffers from this mental illness. Everybody just kind of dismisses it. It's like, no, she's completely fine. Like, but has somebody, has she seen psychiatrists? Like, have we established that 100%? Because like, what drugs is she taking from that bag? Then they presented a suicide note and the transfer of funds. Those funds are going to become important. And other funds, because post-murder, she, she does some dubitable things as well. So the prosecutors come out, and they say that this was not like spur-of-the-moment kind of thing. They said she hasn't spoken or seen either of the former husbands for months. And both of these men gave their rights to, to her to take care of him. So this wasn't like somebody was fighting her for like parental rights and was like, no, there is definitely threat here, I'm going to take the child away from you. They also interviewed hotel employees and they were like, she seemed like calm and composed. There was no like panic, no like, you know, turning back, being like, oh my God, somebody's definitely spying on me. They're stalking me. They're following me. There was nothing like signaling to them. Maybe even, you know, when you call that room service, somebody as paranoid as me can definitely understand if you are a bit paranoid in those situations of anybody, probably even room service. You're like, can I trust you? Who who are you spying on? But There was just no even signs to maybe, like, communicate, try to see, like, is somebody actually stalking you and your son with a hit out on you. And hotel staff also said that she gave instructions to mail donations to two charities, and she paid the manager 1,000 cash for an extra night at the hotel, even after she killed her son. And then they bring out these bank transfers that they had, again, the receipts for, that she has made while her son was already dead, and these arrangements that she made via email with a financial manager to cover the outstanding bills. The prosecutor Matthew Bogdanos said this was a deliberate, intentional, calculated act. Now that we have both sides of the story, let's actually go back to the crime. I outlined it this way because that's how I do it, and because now when you hear the crime, you can decide for yourself does it fit one or does it fit the other, and then let me know what you think. I think if you're here, it's kind of too late to put a disclaimer on, but this part is just brutal. It's definitely more brutal than any of the two things that you have listened and heard this month. So just a warning, I'll put a timestamp if you want to skip through it. It's fine. You can just think that the mom overdosed the son on pills and just live with that if you don't want to live with the next part. So around midnight, based on the post-mortem, based on them actually examining his body and the contents of his stomach, Jude was given 20 pills of Xanax and 40 pills of Ambien. As this article says, no child is supposed to take this many pills or to wash them down with vodka. This part is the one that sticks with me. Like, it's not just that she gave him the pills, is that she shoved alcohol down his system. What the prosecution said that happened during the trial, again, based on the reports, is Jude actually fell asleep. And once he was asleep, Jordan crushes these pills into the what kind of orange solution that she has been drinking herself, and then allegedly gets on top of him and forces this mix into his mouth. And this will be evident by the bruises on the boy's face, nose, and chest. Just remember how brutal this is, yeah, when you try to fit it into the defense or prosecution state of events. 
So the night continues. Her son is clearly dead now because of what she has done. So early morning, February the 4th, she writes checks to two charities. The hotel employee then comes up and collects these checks off of her, not obviously suspecting anything. Also, it's, what, early hours in the morning. She's like, no, 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 they, they need to come and collect and, like, do this for me. Then she calls the front desk and she says she's gonna pay and arrange for another night to stay there. And the night manager comes up to collect yet another payment in cash, $1,000. To which I say it's 2010. Why are we accepting cash payments at the rich-ass hotels? Uh, why? And she has exchange with yet another hotel employee that delivers her a bottle of water because she's a rich bitch. And none of these three people have said that she has even remotely seemed upset. Like, she just killed her son upset. No, no, no. Then at 1.53am, she sends an email to her accountant instructing him to transfer $125,000 from a trust for Jude into one of her accounts. Totally doesn't raise red flags with anybody that's like, okay. But like, you know how Jude is, should still be alive and should maybe use that money that's in his trust? No. Interesting. Prosecutors would later say that this is revealing of her heartlessness. To which I say yes. Sure as fuck, seems calculated. And they also wondered, well, if you were to, after all of this, supposedly commit suicide, why are you bothering to, like, put, to balance this checkbook, to, like, put all of these accounts in order? Why are you transferring money from a deceased person's account to your own account if you are not going to be alive? Then she sits her ass down and writes this 20-page message, which was a summary of a cruel fate that has befallen her and Jude. And eventually, she sends that email to the aunt that was traveling for Europe. We don't know what's in that email, but that aunt, thank fuck, calls that hotel manager who calls the police, and this is all discovered. Back at trial, after five days of deliberation, jury accepted the extreme emotional disturbance defense. This is apparently a strategy that's used for murders that are committed, as, uh, that are committed at the height of passion. So, you know, the ones where people usually just snap. There's a whole TV show that's called Snap, if you want to watch. I would not recommend. And they found her guilty of manslaughter instead of murder. Do I agree with it? No. But I knew that that was not the end of it, because most of the articles that I was reading were pretty recent, you could say. They were all between 2010 and 2020. So she served her sentence at Rikers Island and later was moved to this women's prison in Bedford Hills, New York. However, on October the 1st, 2014, Assistant District Attorney Matthew Bogdanus asked the judge to close the courtroom for an off-the-record discussion. I was like, I don't like this, I don't like this, they're gonna appeal. Of course, this wasn't met by approval. Even one of her lawyers, Mr. Kubi, that represented her at trial, didn't get himself involved in this petition, in her appeal, to get her released. And he said, There is a sense of personal vindication that those principles of an open and public trial that I was risking contempt over. This is the problem when judges give prosecutors everything they want. Sometimes what the prosecutor wants isn't good for them. Sort of like too much candy. Hate that analogy. <laughs> But I get what you mean, you know. You have too much candy, then you get constipated, and then, you know, it stays on your record as a child, right? Because your parents remember. So if you are that kind of prosecutor, maybe the court will remember eventually. Or you're just going to become famous for somebody who is sucking up to judges and getting them to get your clients off, regardless of what pieces of shit your clients are. But I looked further into this, and this article kind of gave a book. I don't know if anybody read this. Just because, you know, the trial of Casey Anthony, like plenty of all of the ones that I have covered this week, regardless of the perpetrator being female or male, like mom or dad, Philly's side sentences are lenient as fuck. I mean, as I said, like at least let them reach menopause. Like these people are not okay to like have any further children. But the fact that prevails is that the courts are very lenient with these sentences. So there's a book, Far From the Tree, Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity by Andrew Solomon, in which he lists like many cases that resemble this in how lenient the sentences were. 
So he concluded, the habit of the courts has been to treat filicide as an understandable, if unfortunate, result of the strains of raising an autistic child. Sentences are light and both the courtroom and the press frequently accept the murderer's profession of altruistic motives. Which is a truest thing. And nothing helps. The fact that we don't know that much about autism, that unless you have an autistic child yourself, definitely doesn't go in the favor of this. The fact that Gigi Jordan was rich and could defend herself and could explain this as a mercy killing, and that people have seen it regardless of how violent it was, that's the part that bothers me. So she's released and she's on bail now. So she served 11 years, which is more than 70% of her sentence. And her conditions now include being confined to her house unless she's basically retried again. And unless she gets permissions from court to like visit the lawyers, doctors, grocery store. So technically, she's living the same life that we are. It's just the fact that, you know, she did serve a bit of time in prison, but uh, the fact that she killed her fucking child. She's living quarantine like the rest of us, guys. It's, it's fine. I, I have a problem with it. I understand that there is no fear that she will reoffend. So by that default, she serves some time in prison. It's just how you see rehabilitation and how you see what she has done. Like, where do you see it on a scale of maybe she should have served a bit more, at least the rest of her sentence? Because it's not like she's going to suffer any further consequences now that she's out. She's still bowling. She still has plenty of that money. So let's go into the background and see where this money came from and the background on both Gigi and Jude to see how everything escalated. Gigi was born in Muncie, Indiana in 1955, and then her family moved to Menlo Park, California in 1970. She studied immunology, and much of her work was on skin and liver disorders. The only thing we know from her childhood is that her parents divorced when she was five and a half years old. She had a sister, but the sister went to live with the dad. And then I found two things in different articles. One says 1970, one 1973, that she moved with her mother to the Bay Area. She first married at the age of 17 to the man that was about twice her age, because that's how it goes. And this guy apparently was living with a friend of hers, but then, well, the friendship broke (laughs) and the marriage broke. So none of those lasted. In the 1980s, she was working as a nurse in the hospitals in San Francisco, but she decided to move the scenery and move to New York. And that's where she still kind of kept, like, both jobs, like, on and off. So she would work as a health worker, administering, like, those intravenous treatments, so going sort of as, like, a nurse, taking blood, like, as home visits, and also would work as the estate broker on the side or, like, on and off, like, switching between the jobs. However, when she was doing these intravenous treatments at home, she realized the company that she was working wasn't really agreeing with her standards, so she created her own. She was like, wow, startup founder, let's do it. So she created ambulatory pharmaceutical services, which quickly became successful. In 1990, through her other real estate job, there was a headhunter that introduced her to Raymond Mira, who was this businessman that was also specializing in pharmaceuticals. And this guy needed somebody for his company that would be a good salesperson. And it was obvious from, like, everything I read that Jordan wasn't into him personally, emotionally, even though, like, she got the vibes that he was. He was described as profusely romantic, aggressive lover, strong interest in S&M. But that she was more into him and thought, like, they would have a better business relationship. However... (laughs) Mira, who was married at the time, still ended up leaving his wife and marrying Gigi eventually. And she married him, and this truly speaks to her character, for tax purposes. So, at the time, he had suffered through thyroid cancer, so I think it was to, like, as a couple, waive, like, some of the healthcare fees versus also, like, some of the business ones, because now she was working in sales for him still. It's all very shady and just unclear. But due to this, and now, well, joining the businesses, at this point, even she was worth $30 million. 
But obviously, it's, she's now in her 30s. It's looming over her that she wanted the family. She always wanted to have a child. And, well, she doesn't want to have it with him because she always saw it for what it was. It was like a business relationship. And then she made it her fucking personal relationship. You can learn a lot from Gigi. You can learn. The hindsight is twenty twenty all the way throughout this fucking case. You can learn so much on what not to do. So, during her 30s, what, what does a woman that's married and has fucked her life over do? She goes frequently to the gym, and then she meets a person in the gym that is a yoga instructor. His name is Emil Tseko. He was this Bulgarian, dark-skinned and dark-haired, with a, mice, <laughs> with a wide smile that she described as not seeming entirely trustworthy. So, of course, you know that this is going to lead to some more shit and some another relationship. Because she knows from the get-go. She's like, no, no, no. You know how some people are like, no, I'm not actually street smart. And then they fuck her life over. She's like, no, I am actually street smart. <laughs> I got the street smarts. I see it immediately. And I still dive straight into it. I still dive straight into the fucking fuck-up. She's like, no, I, I, all of my gut feelings were saying this is a mistake. Uh, say, well, for, first, head into it. Let's do it. This is how Gigi led her life. And this is how she committed crime. This is how she led her life. Is it a mistake? Or it? Not just that, but Emil, because he was from Bulgaria, you know, Europe, US, you need a visa to stay. He has overstayed her visa, so he was technically there illegally. So, of course, in her head, she's like, this is a perfect candidate for me to have a child with. What is going on there in your head? Like, some people, exactly, just school smart, have no fucking idea how to live their fucking life, like, without some shit. Just chill. Just the effort. It's always what gets me with these true crime cases. Why are you putting so much effort into fucking leaving it wrong? So Gigi straight up told him, again, because she knows, she thinks rationally. In every situation, as it will come to show... She wants a child, but she doesn't want another husband. So Seko is like, cool, you know, you, as long as, you know, we get fake married, I stay in the country, you get your child, I get the papers. It's how it works out for both of us. Jordan divorces her first husband and marries Tsekov less than a week after this divorce. So Jude is born on July 13th, 2001, and he was Jude Mira, so he shared the first husband's last name, because apparently Tseko, because he was a yoga instructor who was also here legally, wasn't equipped to take financial care of the child while Mira was. And apparently this woman managed, again, probably clearly thinking and manipulating her way around it, to convince the first husband to still financially take care of her and the child while she basically divorced him in 2001 right after 9-11 in November and married the second person a week later. So whether she was just honest and explained the situation, I don't know how this flew, I don't know how she was manipulating the situation, but she managed to get everything that she wanted apparently. And at first, obviously, when he was a child, Jude seemed to develop normally. However, when he was two years old, it was apparent that he wasn't developing as fast as other kids, and he was diagnosed with autism, which is a disorder that's marked by poor social skills and lack of communication and repetitive behaviors. This diagnosis happens, and Gigi is like, cool. I'm bringing you to professionals, I'm bringing you to real GPs, and we are establishing a long-term plan. Like, we are doing the test and trial, because this is truly what you need to do with autism. You need to try something for a longer period of time, see if it works. If it doesn't, okay, change it. Change to different therapies, change to somebody else. Of course, this is exactly not what she does, because she thinks she knows the smartest thing. She knows everything suddenly about autism, even though she has probably never fucking researched it before this, because she has experience treating livers and shit. This truly, from now on, is going to become triggering, especially if you do know somebody that's autistic or you have somebody with autism, just because she does everything wrong. And it reminds me, tell me if you want a month of Munchausen by proxy. So like DD, Gypsy Blanchard, like other cases, there are plenty. I didn't want something to like override here with the Felicides month. But there are plenty of cases of Munchausen by proxy. And this kind of reminds me of, that is probably had she not killed her son, where this would have gone. As in, she would have made the son completely dependent on her and she is just doing whatever she thinks is best. Like, she is diagnosing the child in her head before going and getting a professional opinion. So just a disclaimer, because this gets triggering to me, at least. 
because it just pisses me off whatever she does. So, Gigi thought that his autism was related to immune dysfunction. Some of the doctors actually agreed. But as I'm telling you, why I saw the crossover between the Munchausen and this case is because usually with Munchausen by proxy, the mom goes to the doctor and then she's like, listen, this is what you need to get them tested for because this is what I suspect is happening to my child. And then it's really hard to like override it. And then what happens is whoever is the first person that makes that false diagnosis, everybody else follows because all of these people have their jobs online. If you're a fifth person seeing somebody, which is so dangerous, but if you're a fifth person seeing somebody that four doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists have already diagnosed as one thing, then of course you're going to be like, well, why would I override professional opinion of four other people? Let's just stick to this treatment. Let's just see, let's just agree with them. It makes my fucking blood boil. And just like what she has done after Julie died, she consulted a lot of these people online like via email, via phones, without even meeting them. Like there was this guy, Fun de Water, that actually never met any of them. And she consulted him about stem cell treatment, thinking that this is the neuroimmune disease, and apparently has invited him to a party in Manhattan, but they never actually like met in person for him to examine Jude. This will not be the worst of it. During that first year that he was diagnosed, they moved zip codes. They moved all throughout the US. Marine country, Manhattan, Lake Tahoe, the horse country, Virginia. Again, giving you the vibe that she isn't staying in one place for long enough, which is just not great for any child, regardless of them having autism or not. Especially if they are to receive like some consistent care in one certain place. And this is going to become a pattern. The most solid care that this child got was in 2003 when she took him to Kogel Autism Center in University of California in Santa Barbara. This is where the clinicians worked with him for about five and six months. And when I read this at first, I was like, okay, finally, finally, she has like seen some God or something. So they focused on behavioral approaches, so focusing on speech, social behaviors, so like making sure that he is pointing, for example, making eye contact, like starting small. And the doctors have said the challenge is to get the disorder clocked in earlier stages, which they have done, they have figured out exactly what he has, and then to convince parents to stick with behavioral therapy instead of fleeing for exotic treatments that are promising instant cures. You can guess which one Gigi thinks that is better for her own son. So, of course, she doesn't see that the things are improving at the speed that she wants them to improve, so after five or six months, she takes Jude away. This next part kills me, kills me inside. She thought she should fight diagnosis instead of the disease. What that means is basically she's like, no, let me be five steps ahead. You can't be five steps ahead of a fucking disease. Like, you study this shit. You study, like, immunology. She thought he had an autoimmune disorder with neurological symptoms. So she thinks, why not fight the linguistic neurological disorder? So basically, don't focus on this thing where he's like to point or, you know, to make eye contact. No, no, it's basics. Let's focus on making him fucking speak. Like, you know, like, let's just focus on, on that first. She doesn't comment. She puts him through so many procedures. Pulse treatments of steroids. Blood cleansing procedure called plasmapheresis. High-dose chemotherapy. My grandma, who is dying of fucking cancer of 50 plus years, took chemotherapy and couldn't fucking handle it. This child, who is within the first five, six years of his life, is going through chemotherapy. Stem cell treatments, electroconvulsive therapy, dozens of psychoactive medications. We know he was taking 40 a day by the age when he died, when he was nine years old. She even thought that he might have had adrenal cancer. So he received full body MRI scan at Yale, no tumors revealed, but again, she persists because this is where she's going. She has to have complete control over her kid. And she places him on the treatment on these norpine frine suppressors. Is that how it's pronounced? (sighs) Of course it doesn't help. Of course it doesn't help because now, like, you think he has a tumor that he doesn't have. You're using something that doesn't help. Like, of course, his mind is going to be even ten times more mush. How do you think he's going to, like, suddenly improve? when he's under constant medication that's just making him probably groggy as fuck. And in early 2008, 
she starts to like unravel. She is this is when she starts losing it and she starts saying that Jude has actually learned how to use a laptop despite of all of this and despite nobody else witnessing anything even remotely close to that and has blamed dozens of people that have sexually abused him. So Gigi starts corresponding with Flint Waters, who was this Wyoming-based investigator of internet crimes against children. But I think this guy got really red flags. Like, he got... I'm so enraged that this did not stop then and there. Because what this guy does, he gets some red flags, probably because of how she was describing it. He's like, this is not how a child would describe something like this. It doesn't sound legit. It sounds like he can't even speak. And in the stories, there were references to satanic cults. But he obviously is like, okay, come and meet me. But what he does, he's like, no, I need somebody else to investigate it. So at the airport, when she flew to meet this guy, the police waited for her. And basically, she was taken into custody to be questioned. And Jude was put into foster care. While they were questioning her in the police, she said it all started with one day Jude rising from bed with the shouts of dead bed which is probably the only honest thing that this woman has said, because I can sort of see that that would be the communication level at which Jude was at that point. I don't think that he developed anything beyond that. And I don't think that even that could have been like a fucking dream. As I mentioned, I don't think that they investigated the sexual claims to the degree that they, or they told us how they investigated this. However, none of these accused sexual molesters have been charged with anything they have been accused of. So they're questioning her further, and she describes that he started typing on the computer and the BlackBerry. He described extreme ritualistic forms of abuse, including oral penetration, anal penetration, forced ingestion of feces, and torture with needles by his father. And she describes, yes, she never reported it to the police, but she has consulted, again, she's consulting multiple people, she's consulting different therapists so that she has it on the record. Eventually, Somehow, her friends, because again, she's influential, she has like friends in influential places, were calling the police and were like asking for her release. You know, she needs to be reunited with her kid. And Jude was released from foster care, she was released from custody, and they went back to California. And truly, if there was one point of no return, this would be it. In 2009, there was another ray of hope for Jude. He was enrolled into this small and progressive studio school in the, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And at this point, before this, she would never stay in a single place for more than a month, um, beyond that time that she stayed at Santa Barbara for like five to six months. So studio school seemed to understand that autistic children cannot cope with a classic traditional classroom setting. So they had like a kind of small caring place where he could have really thrived. So this teacher, Julian maybe, was, if you remember the one that she mentioned in that note that she left after the murder, and she was kind of accommodating. She was one of those teachers that we appreciate so much because she would add a personal touch. She would understand the child and then treat them as an individual, accommodating their own needs, which was really important here. So when he would refuse to come into the classroom, she would allow him to sit in the hallway in his favorite rocking chair. And in December, so this is December 2009, remember? His mother said that he was already using laptop and saying that bad and all of that. This is when maybe, for, for the first time, witness him say a single word which was high. And she clearly remembered it, how thrilling this was for her. Also, she recalls this time when they went to ice skating in Central Park, and he obviously wouldn't skate, but he, like, would sit next to another teacher as well, and it just looked like, you know, he was acclimatizing, he was enjoying himself, and he was actually paying attention, he was very attentive towards what's happening, which she didn't notice before. And she said what was very exciting is every time Jude was making contact with somebody and moving away from his mother physically. As that's how it should be normally like so for her to see something like this again meant that this child could have possibly thrived it just was you know move him from this attachment and dependence on a parent but of course that wasn't good enough for Gigi maybe last saw Jude on January 19th 2010 Gigi decides for some reason to take the child out and go 
through different hotels. She went to Florida. They stayed at Four Seasons in Palm Beach. Then they returned to New York on February the 3rd. And this is actually where she was apparently staying at the apartment, the Trump residence. However, she thought at this point she was full-on paranoid that her ex-husband's Mira's henchmen are out to get her. So the cameras spotted her going into the apartment, but then five minutes later coming out. And next, you spot her on the corner of 72nd Street and Columbus Avenue, where she gets him a hot dog. Then they went to Chase Branch, made that 8 million transfer. And this is when they got into a cab for three hours, just going around. And her bail deprecation from 2011 describes this period. Gigi Jordan saw no path by which she could protect her child. Death for both of them was the only refuge. Which I'm sorry. Again, I I don't want to say like it's morbid enough what happened for me to be like, oh, she didn't try enough to commit suicide. But that part is just never explained. Like, why was nothing in her system showing that she attempted to kill herself as well? Why was this so violent to begin with? You'll have to let me know where do you see this fitting, towards the defense or the prosecution? Which account of events does this fit for you? My personal opinion... This was calculated. We are going to go into the motives now, because obviously her own presentation of why this was done was altruistic, was a mercy killing. And then, for me, it is... Like, let's say we have a scale. It's like one of those moving scales where it can be both things, but it kind of leans towards one or the other. For me, it is between spousal revenge and unwanted child. So let's discuss that in further detail. Let's say this was altruistic, so she believed she was helping her son. Usually, in those cases, those parents are suffering from psychosis. Here, I don't think anybody diagnosed her. I could not find that anybody diagnosed this woman with any mental health issues. So what we have is her saying that this was a mercy killing, her saying, giving us reasons why she killed it, because obviously one husband, one ex-husband was out to get her, and then that would leave him without a mother, and that would leave him in the hands of a second husband who is sexually abusive to the child. I'm not discarding the altruistic thing, because I do think like she snapped at a certain point, and she possibly could have convinced herself every single day that this is the truth. Another point in the favor of the altruistic killing is what she said, that she planned to commit basically a murder-suicide and kill both of them, and that way she will end this pain and all of that. And unfortunately, what, the aunt sent somebody and they caught her before she could do that. What doesn't go into that favor is, first of all, for me, how brutal this killing was. I can never get that off my fucking mind, how brutal this was and how it did not have to be that. Like, literally, this was an autistic child who went to sleep. She could have given him milk and pills and he could have overdosed. Like, this, I'm not saying she should have done any of it, but it definitely did not have to be this violent. And that's not the violence that she has ever portrayed towards herself. That's the part that I have so many problems with. So if you're calling something a mercy, why does it not feel like it? It just adds to it, because she is calling everybody else an abuser, and then this is how it ends. And now, going back onto that scale, I think if she was thinking rationally, let's say because she hasn't never been diagnosed with psychosis, with anything, then, yes, I definitely think there was some grudge towards her spouses, like her ex-spouses, I genuinely think with Gigi, from everything that I have read, that she kind of... It's it's one of those things when you try to convince yourself and you eventually buy into the story for yourself. Like, so she probably, with everything that I was telling you, everything was calculated. Like, she saw that this person will be a mistake and she still went and did it. She saw that this path would be wrong. She still went for it and did it. And then the only way that something like that can be justified in somebody's head is to make this other person a bad guy. As we know, in loads of cases, like, let's say it's divorce and, you know, you are the one cheating, but for you to justify that, to be able to live with yourself, you blame it on somebody else. Like, you blame it on your partner, then they are the bad guy and you feel like, okay, to proceed with this. 
So I think there was definitely a bit of that, but for me, it is unwanted child. And okay, Gigi, if you're listening to this, or if you know the lawyers are listening to this, and someone's gonna come for my fucking ass, I definitely think you wanted a child. Don't get me wrong, I do think you wanted a fucking child badly, probably. You were really happy once the child was born. And then, at the age of two, when your child was diagnosed with autism, you went into the, let's resolve this mode, because that's the career you have chosen. Had a bit, probably, of a hero complex. And, eventually, it probably occurred to you that maybe that is, yes, you wanted a child, but that is not the child you wanted. And that's what's so fucking painful, because everything that I have said from the background, from how she attempted to cure him, from how she attempted to fit this into her own diagnosis on autism, and how to treat him, is what I find to be a ceiling stamp in this case. Because she did want a child, she just wanted them to be more normal, more fitting her lifestyle. And then the fact that Jude wasn't, for years and years, fitting that standard and growing up to be the child that she wanted, then suddenly she just escalated and she didn't know how to deal with it any longer. The Associated Press says all of her money, all of her resources, she decided to kill him. There were so many things she could have done. This reminded me, you're probably aware, like because this was on trending on, on YouTube, uh, of that couple. It's like a famous family, vloggers, whatever the fuck. And they, they adopted um, a child with like learning disabilities and then kind of from the vlogs looked like they bullied him. They just didn't know what the fuck they were doing with the child. And it was hard to raise, which is like research before you fucking go and adopt a child to fit into your vlogging lifestyle. So the child wasn't fitting into that. It wasn't vloggable enough. And it was barely actually appealing in vlogs as well. Again, because they were loaded too. So instead of coping it, instead of actually maybe portraying to different families that are dealing with the exact same thing, how how they're going about it, what therapies they're receiving, how they're dealing with these learning disabilities, what have they learned? No, They have instead tried a couple of months, the child wasn't fitting their fucking lifestyle, and then they have made a video, like, apologetic and all, being like, oh my god, we had to, like, return him to foster care or whatever, because they couldn't take care of him. I was thinking about this during this research, because yes, that is wrong on so many levels, as I have just explained, however, still, I kind of am glad that they have at least gotten that child back into the care of maybe somebody that knows what they're doing. Instead of where maybe this would have escalated to once they realize that the child will never fit into what their lifestyle is. In my head, this is the person that knew what she was doing. This is a person that had enough money and resources to help this child the way that the child should have been helped. But after a certain time, she just continued following her thought process, thinking she knows the best. And then at certain points, a path presented itself, where she doesn't have to take the blame. Because probably she thought the world will see it the way that she saw it. And that is that she has done everything in her power, and she has tried hundreds and hundreds of options. And she took it. And it ended in a loss of life over a child that would have probably grown up completely functional or could have grown up in somebody else's care and could have had a normal, happy, decent, well-funded, well-cared-for life. <laughs> That's the case of J.J. Jordan. This, this month has hit hard, okay? It has hit hard. Next week I'm bringing you a really light case because I just can't. I'm bringing you an oldie and a goodie and a really light case that might or might not have inspired something on television or theater or something else. You'll you learn. You'll learn. No, but now, before that, oh God, like, it's, let's think, let's focus on the present. <laughs> You're going into your next Zoom meeting. And, well, you can start up conversations about, hey, do you know which offenses would go really light in court? Like, no? Oh, guess what? And then people will probably be like, well, you know, weed, like, robberies maybe and you're like no 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 philicides not giving you an ideas but uh, don't do it uh, but you know you there's this girl that has covered three cases and uh it's pretty interesting go listen to it and bum yourselves out 
what if this case taught you anything and something that I should definitely start doing myself? And I was thinking about this a lot because you have like the three smarts, you have the book smarts and obviously those two never collide. Like you can never have somebody who's like a genius in school. They just don't know how to like choose partners. Just don't. But there is a category that is often disregarded and that is job smart, business smart. There are people like me that they just, they know, but they know bit too late like they can't really figure it out 100% at the interview stage like uh, maybe you know like you know like everybody's great at the interview stage then they sign the contract and they join and like the first day of like the training they go in and they feel the energy of the place and they're like well I'm gonna waste about two years of my life here now because I have signed a fucking contract and that is what it is yeah that's my lifestyle so if this case taught you anything is once you spot a mistake you don't proceed to then go into business with that mistake have a child with that mistake and unravel everything in your head and then blame everything on those people and those mistakes like you know like um, blame everything on the companies and the jobs because they were like that before you joined them don't go out there starting false rumors because of what you have done as a mistake two years before. Cool? Cool. Yeah, now you follow your advice. Oh, that one is hard, isn't it, Maya? That, that one is a bit harder than, than you have ever done. Very happy to give you advice. Will I follow through? That is the question. That is a very good question. <laughs> Uh, so I gotta leave you. Listen, I, I have my life. I have another episode to, read, <laughs> to record. That is my life, literally. <laughs> Just record, record, record. Then do that job that I hate. Cool. Okay, so... <laughs> Before you follow through my advice, you, you enjoy this Monday. And you what, what you do? You make it a very happy place. What? <laughs> you make it by doing that, by enjoying it. And... Uh, and not making the same mistakes as the person in this case today, you make it a better place. <laughs> making a Monday a better place. Yeah, I'm changing, changing the outro a bit. How do you do that? One motive at a time. Wow, almost almost didn't finish that. Almost didn't wiggle the, yourselves out of that one. Barely, barely made it, Maya. Barely made it. Um, bye, fuckers. <laughs>